Hello, everyone. We're glad you found us, and welcome to our podcast at AntiqueAuctionForum.com. We hope you find this show entertaining and informative. Hi, everyone. It's Martin Willis. Our guest today is one of the country's leading authorities on Abraham Lincoln and the political culture of the Civil War era. He gives lectures on the subject, and he's authored, co-authored, and edited 37 books, as well as more than 450 articles. Harold Holzer, how are you? I'm fine. I'm exhausted listening to the introduction. (laughs) Sounds like you've done a lot of work. (laughs) I always ask this question in the beginning. What uh, what spawned your interest in Abraham Lincoln? Well, at the beginning, for me, um, was a fifth grade um, assignment. Uh, we, huh? we literally, we had a, uh, a teacher who asked us to take a name from her hat. Uh, we all lined up, and I took, a, I pulled the name of Abraham Lincoln. Isn't that something? My friend, uh, Dennis who was right behind me, took Genghis Khan, and he wound up as a rock and roll promoter. So I think these things, I don't know what there is that's funny about that line, but every time I use it, I get a laugh. So there must be, there's some bizarre connection between Genghis Khan and and rock music. But anyway, I picked Lincoln and just went to the middle school library that we we had attached to us and um, picked up, probably it was a tactile reaction because it had a beautiful, shiny black cover with a broken glass negative photograph of Lincoln on the spine. Mm. The book was The Lincoln Nobody Knows by Richard Current, and that's what sent me off into the Lincoln world. Now, was that the image that was found, like, years after he, he died? It was an image that was actually in Lincoln's secretary's files. It was oh. certainly found much, much, much later, but it was taken... Uh, uh, for artist Francis Carpenter, who was using it as a model for his famous painting of the first reading of the Emancipation Proclamation. It just looked so vivid there and uh, so real and uh, stark. Mm-hmm. And, and it, uh, you know, it was just the beginning of the Civil War centennial. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, 60, 61. Um, so that helped as well, that whole Civil War centennial moment. Mm. Um, and just as we all hope that the sesquicentennial, which is beginning now, encourages students again to be focused in their interest. Yeah, yeah. Lincoln's one of my favorite people, and that's why I was really excited that you said you'd speak with us. Also, for our listeners, I'm going to be posting a blog at the same time on Abraham Lincoln's papers. We also have some of your books, um, Harold, on our website that are available. And can you talk about your latest book? Sure. Um, actually, there's a latest book, and there's one that's about to come out. So if I okay. may, I'll, I'll do both. The, the, the one that I put out most recently is an editing project that I did in collaboration with one of my best friends in the Lincoln world, uh, Professor Craig Simons of um, the Naval Academy. Craig and I were asked to do, to edit the voluminous Civil War reporting of the New York Times over the entire course of the war. They wow. have more than 100,000 entries. <laughs> um, but with the help of a good scanner of highlights and our own sense of what needed to be included to make sure we included not only uh, military history, but also home front politics, race issues, 
Um, we put together a highlights book, a big, big highlights book, and it's accompanied by a CD-ROM that has, for anybody who really wants to, to drill down into that history for themselves, uh, uh, if you buy the book, you get this great CD, and you always have the complete New York Times with you, with all its flaws, because there are a lot of typos in there, but it, oh, really? it is what it is, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was fun, because we got to talk about what newspapers were like in um, the 19th century and how partisan they were. It's sort of like the 24-hour news broadcasts in the United States now. Um, <laughs> every city had a Fox and an MSNBC mm -hmm. in opposition to each other, um, you know, haranguing at each other all the time. Mm. And the Times was sort of in the, I guess, the left middle. Uh, at that time, it was a Republican paper, but not a very progressive Republican uh, mm -hmm. uh, paper. And Harper's Weekly was uh, really involved in the Civil War. It absolutely was. Um, different kind of a thing. It, mm -hmm. it offered what the daily papers didn't offer, which is um, drawings, uh, right. engravings of, of, you know, newspapers couldn't print photographs in those days. Mm -hmm. So Harper's Weekly artists sent back sketches from the front, and they were engraved for a very eager readership. Right. Anyway, the, so the Times is one of the books, and I would just add one thing, that um, the publishers very much wanted to have a, uh, a preface by a famous person, so I asked uh, President Clinton if he would do it, and he did. All right. Yeah. Yeah, great. So that was pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. The one that's about to come out is a book for young readers. Um, oh. I do these every once in a while because the publisher asks me to, and um, I used to write them. I began writing them when my own kids were young, because I thought this was a way for them to read something that their father was was writing. Mm -hmm. um, not that they really did, but that's another story. <laughs> but what, was, what I found really interesting about it is writing children's literature or children's history is, is like going back to writing school. Hmm. You have to stop... Um, embellishing your prose you have to you have to hone it you have to simplify it i'm not saying that in a you know a sanctimonious way i'm just saying to you you got to cut the long sentences you got to be more declarative and mm -hmm. you sort of emerge from the process of doing this like refreshed hmm. that your style is no longer encumbered with all the the uh, techniques and the and the little Gigas that you've attached to it. So I, I love doing it. It's it's you know, wow. hard work, but I. Anyway, this book is called Father Abraham, Lincoln and His Sons, hmm. and it's a history of the Lincoln family, uh, the marriage and the raising of the boys, and then with an epilogue about the descendants. Hmm. So I think it'll interest uh, young readers who are curious to know what presidential families are like. That's great. Wow. And when does that come out? Um, it comes out next month. Wow, pretty soon. Birthday. All right, great. Um, all right, well, I'm a big fan of Lincoln. My knowledge of him is spotty, I would say. But I do have some questions I'd like to start asking you. Okay. Uh, when Lincoln was nine, he loses his mother, and his father, Thomas, goes to his former home in Kentucky, and he knows of... Sarah Johnson's a widow, and he basically tells her we have to get married, and they end up getting married. And um, You make it sound so romantic. <laughs> that's kind of how I heard it was. <laughs> you know what? It wasn't uncommon. 
Yeah. It wasn't uncommon. I mean, you yeah. got he, this guy, you know, Thomas knew Sarah before. Mm-hmm. She's a widow with children. He's a uh, widower with children. Yep. They just sort of make the best of it. They need to, re- for different reasons. He had a farm and she had furniture. <laughs> right, right. He had a boy who, who maybe, you, you need boys on these farms. Yeah. So she had a boy, an extra boy. Uh-huh. So brought the extra boy to... To, and an extra girl, you know, the, 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 Thomas, I know you haven't asked your question yet, but you may, you've opened <laughs> up a door here. Um, you know, uh, Thomas Lincoln and Sarah Lincoln had something else in common. Um, they didn't have big families. You know, big families, while they ate more and cost more, they also produced more. You know, you mm-hmm. could send them into the fields and make them do chores. Both of them had the unusual um, uh, small family in those days. They each had two. Hmm. So... Um, you know, they, they supplemented each other nicely. Yeah. Now, can you talk a little bit about the positive influence that Sarah had on Lincoln's oh, development? Oh, sure. Well, you know, Thomas left his kids for months to find, to track down Sarah and and uh, and win her over. Um, and when Sarah got back to um, the farm with with her children, she what she saw were two children who she said looked like wild animals. <laughs> they were dirty. They were... Um, dressed in ragged clothes, the place was, you know, you know, it's like leaving your teenagers for the weekend with the with the booze uh, allegedly locked up. It's a, it's a, it's a recipe for disaster. The fact that they survived at all is pretty amazing. Right. Uh, she um, cleaned them up. She made them clothes. She had her husband, who was after all a carpenter, uh, make a wooden floor for their cabin. Until then, they actually had a dirt floor. Mm. Can you imagine? Mm. Um, Built a wooden floor, built sleeping nooks into the into the rafters. Um, she had furniture of her own that she brought mm-hmm. in. Even though Lincoln was a furniture maker, he did it for profit, not for his home. And then, you know, she brought books. That was the most important thing. She brought Aesop's Fables. She brought the Bible. She provided Lincoln the, the fuel that fired his imagination and his intellectual curiosity. And I believe that if it hadn't been for her, he could never have become what he was because the raw materials of his mind were there. But again, there was no, to torture this metaphor, there, were no, there was no fuel until she brought the books. Yeah, that's, a, that's just a great set of coincidences right there. Now, um, if I remember right, Lincoln practiced law for something like, I know we're jumping ahead, you know, quite far ahead, but he practiced law for something like 25 years or so. Yes. And you really don't hear a whole lot about this time. However, as far as documents and papers, that's probably the most common uh, clip signatures and signatures you can find of Lincoln. But can you talk a little bit more about how he evolved into politics from that time? Yeah, you know, Lincoln... um I mean, he was a good lawyer. He was a successful lawyer. Um, he became a very successful lawyer. But I think my view of it is the law was his avenue to politics. Hmm. You know, he was a he was a roving lawyer. He was a circuit lawyer, which meant that six months out of every year he got in his horse and buggy and traveled around the the, the judicial circuit, which was huge, wow. many counties. And he would go to the county seat and sort of set up shop like a flea market. And huh. people with pending cases who were waiting for the lawyers to get to town would just choose a lawyer. And a lot of them wanted Lincoln because he was a great jury lawyer. Wow. Is that he would get you... his cases, but he would meet people. He would write the names down. He would build this net, these networks of supporters and friends and admirers. 
in each of these towns. So when he was ready to run for Congress, he had a network of supporters and, and active workers in these in these um, uh, distant areas of, of his district. And then, uh, you know, he kept doing it, practicing law in Chicago and meeting new people uh, who could help him politically, meeting newspapermen, which was always critical, getting editors on your side. So that's how I think he combined, you know, a reasonably good law practice with, an, uh, you know, a, a, an unusually important political career. Now, would you call someone like him an itinerant lawyer? Is that basically what he was? Yeah, you could, but, but he wasn't. I mean, that's probably going a little too far because he did have a, uh, a headquarters office in the state capital of Springfield where he lived. And he did do his appeals work in Springfield and his research and his reading at the law library across the streets. And he did spend half the year practicing from his office. But that's why circuit, a circuit lawyer is probably the best description because the circuit just happened when it happened. It was like the state fair. Mm-hmm. Everybody knew the date when the lawyers and the courts would set up. So as a dark horse candidate, he gets elected and are you saying that mostly this had to do with all the networking he was doing? Well, I'll tell you, going, you know, like doing this like a funnel down to the narrowest part of the equation. Mm-hmm. Um, he wins because, um, you know, it's the Republicans' time and the Democrats are divided and he's a moderate so he can win in Illinois and Indiana, which the Republicans failed to do four years earlier when they fielded their first candidate. But drill it down more, he won the nomination because of the incredible network that he put together, very cagey operators uh, at the convention in Chicago. Uh, he stacked the gallery, you know, his people stacked the gallery, so they cheered more for Lincoln than for anyone else. They ar- arranged the seating in the convention hall, so it would be hard for his opponents to get together even on a crowded floor. <laughs> and then if you drill it down further, he used all of his influence in political, uh, local political connections to become the favorite son of Illinois. He had to have that before he became a name at the convention. Hmm. So if it, you know, yes, he started, it all evolved from operating at the local level and then up from there. When he made that statement, the House divided, that was prior to the election, is that right? Uh, He made the House divided speech prior to the Senate election. Ah. two years before the presidential election. Mm -hmm. And that was quite controversial at the time, right? Yeah, it was controversial, very controversial. And, um, you know, William Seward got into trouble for giving a similar kind of speech, saying that uh, there was a higher law than the U.S. Constitution, and that was the moral. Can you imagine saying that today when we're all so (laughs) driven again by the Constitution? Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But Lincoln got away with it, I think, because... There's a lot of you know questioning about why did he get away with it, and Seward didn't. I think the difference is it was a Bible quote. Oh, mm-hmm. you know it comes out of the Bible, so Lincoln could always say, "I'm quoting the Bible." Hmm. And uh, but it was absolutely controversial. He carried it with him throughout the Lincoln Douglas debates in a little uh, scrapbook he took with him. Wow. And every once in a while he would try to he would trot out the scrapbook and read it and say, you know, it's not what you think, it's this, it's not that. And 
So it haunted him for a while, and, and, and uh, he, but the amazing thing is that he lived it down, and I think it's because of that biblical illusion. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, Lincoln's stance was not initially on emancipation, but he knew slavery was wrong, and he specifically wanted to stop the spreading of it. Right. And we had the ending of the Mexican War, and the territories were being admitted as either right. free or slave states. So there was a lot of turmoil about that. Besides slavery issues, can we go a little into but what actually was the cause of the Civil War? Sure. That's an easy one. That's a one-word answer. Slavery. <laughs> slavery is the cause of the Civil War. You know, I, one of my favorite Lincoln letters now is a newly discovered letter in which Lincoln writes to a Republican senator named Thomas Corwin uh, of Ohio, very famous orator. And he used to go around speaking um, all over the country about the issues facing the country. And Lincoln found out that, um, that uh, Corwin was beginning to devote his time to speaking about the tariff and about other issues. And Lincoln wrote him a really sharp letter saying, you might as well talk about trees. He said, the, the only thing that we should be talking about is slavery. Otherwise, people are going to make fun of us. That's the only issue. Wow. If you look at the Lincoln-Douglas debates, they never discussed anything else but slavery. Really? Three hours of debate times seven. 21 hours, and that's the only issue, aside from mutual character assassination, that's it. The election of 1860 was all about slavery, secession was all about slavery, and ultimately the Civil War was all about slavery. And, and I know there's a big movement afoot to reintroduce the idea that it was tariffs and state rights and cotton trade and all these other um, subsidiary issues. Um, but I, I just don't think that that's logical or accurate. And if you look at the proceedings of the secession conventions, mm -hmm. if you look at the state constitutions that uh, were created by these newly seceded states, and if you look at the Confederate Constitution, they enshrine it's all about sanctity and uh, goodness of the society of the slaveholder and the aristocracy. So. I'm afraid that's it, with all our talk about other things. Okay, well that's... Slavery, 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 slavery like jobs, jobs, jobs today. <laughs> or location, location. Or location. deficit, deficit. Yeah, location too, right? <laughs> well, I know John Brown, you know, that situation in, right. where was it, Harper's Ferry or something mm -hmm. like that? Harper's Ferry. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, that of course happened uh, ahead of time, but it was heading in that direction for sure. So let's get into the Civil War a little bit, um, but I have a kind of a probably a strange question. Before the attack happened at Fort Sumter, um, what did our whole entire Union Army look like before it was divided? Was it oh, concentrated? It, it, looked like a, um, it looked like a small crowd at Wrigley Field. That's what it looked like. <laughs> it was not a big army. Hmm. Mm -hmm. It was a very, you know, America until the Civil War had a long-standing horror of standing armies. They didn't like the idea that they armies, especially after the French Revolution. They didn't want armies. So as soon as wars were over, they were pared down to a professional military class who stayed in the army and basically did engineering work. Um, really? hmm. There were very few ships. Uh, there was a very small force. Mm -hmm. There were some state militias, but there was not a very, very big or well-supplied um, or, or armed um, war department. What is truly extraordinary is how quickly it came up to speed after April 
I mean, Lincoln calls for 75,000 volunteers right after Sumter. And pretty soon he's got an army of, but you know, eventually you've got a couple of million men in arms, and that's just amazing. Right, right. Now, the 20 states in the north and 11 in the south or something right. like that, and Sherman stated that he thought it was going to be a long and difficult war, and they thought he was crazy, and everyone else uh, thought it would be over extremely quickly. The question I have, do you think it would have been over quickly if Lee sided with the Union instead? I'm really throwing some strange yeah, questions at a, you. <laughs> it's a very good question, and, uh, I, you know, I love the what-if questions as much as anybody. Um, you know, it would it, it would it might have been over more quickly had Lee gone to the been head of the Confederate Army sooner. When you think about it, they did all right between 1861 and the Peninsula Campaign, just in in showing toughness and winning Bull Run and everything. But if Lee was there in at Bull Run, uh, he might have marched to Washington. He was a very aggressive guy and a very mm -hmm. daring guy. And some people say, you know, now in retrospect, a reckless guy. He was willing to gamble to gain victories, and he did it. Right. So he did it at Chancellorsville. He did it often. Um, he won against all odds. So I think it cuts both ways. If, if the Confederacy had not called him an old man and put him in charge earlier, they might have won their independence. Wow. Um, and if the Union um, had him, he probably a shorter war. Listen, if if the Confederates had not won the counterattack at Bull Run, the war might have been over in July 1861. Mm. And then we would have a very brief uh, sesquicentennial observation <laughs> and a lot a lot bigger country because there would have been 600,000 living people who could procreate and we'd have 500,000, 500 million people in the United States instead of 300 million. James McPherson, my friend, mm -hmm. uh, the great Civil War historian, um, says that a lot of the Civil War was not just about who had the most states and who had the most men and who had the better equipment. It was also about what he calls contingency. What happens if Chamberlain doesn't hold uh, the Union line or counterattack on the second day at Gettysburg? What happens if that surge at, um, at uh, Bull Run was turned back by the Union armies in July? What would happen if, um, if uh, Meade pursued Lee after Gettysburg or McClellan pursued the, the Army of Northern Virginia after Antietam? Um, a lot of what ifs, and, and mm. but milita military battles are tough to predict. Things happen during the battle, and you know, all hell can break loose, and it did. Yes, yes, and uh, what a different world, like you just mentioned. If it was over quickly or if the Confederate States won, things would be a little different for us today. <laughs> I know, absolutely. Yeah. Was, I mean, one of the things that people speculate about to just continue the what if thing, a nausea maybe, but what happens if um, when when uh, in 1880 in the in the new Confederate States of America, what happens when when uh, Texas uh, comprehends that its interests are not the same as North Carolina's, and uh, Texas and New Mexico say, well, we have to create a new country called the Southwest uh, of the United States, hmm. and and then Maine says, well, why are we sticking with uh, Illinois? It's a little, you know, we have seacoasts and they have farms and what is the point and so in the end what happens when when hitler comes to power and we have six countries here who can barely um hmm. feed themselves let alone hold off fascism right right all kinds of what ifs you mentioned george mcclellan earlier um he was for a while he was the leader of the union army and uh, i know there was a lot of talk about him kind of resting on his laurels and lincoln was very frustrated with that all the time one of the questions i 
that occurred to me. Do you think he was soft on the Confederate states because of his uh, political ambition? I mean, is that kind of a strange tact? No, well, I think it's a very good point. I, I think, the, I don't know if he was soft. I don't think he believed in total war by any means. I think he believed in gentlemen's wars on battlefields, not um, not sacking of cities and things like that. So in that regard, he was a little bit soft. I mean, he was also incredibly fearful of confrontation and uh, not too interested in fighting. That's another that's a really big problem. Mm -hmm. But I think what, when you talk about what motivated McClellan to be reticent, aside from his personal, you know, his personality and his idea of formal tactics, was that he didn't believe in a massive society-altering war that would in, in, that would free African Americans. Hmm. He told Lincoln as much. He he believed in a war just that would restore the federal authority and return the states to their original alignment with the, the, with Washington. In other words, what was called the status quo antebellum. Uh -huh. No new society, no free blacks, and um, he was just not the right man to continue the fight after Antietam, not after Lincoln changed the rationale for the war and expanded it. Did uh, McClellan use that as his, his political platform? Um, well, he did. Um, he believed that the war had gone on long enough, and he there was a peace uh, pl plank in the Democratic platform of 1864 when he ran against Lincoln that was so much seen as sort of a surrender plank that he actually put out a statement. You know, in those days, candidates didn't campaign for themselves. I wish sometimes that we were doing that again. Mm -hmm. um, so we're going to have to go through two years. I can't believe we have a presidential campaign beginning in January 2011. Oh. But anyway, um, <laughs> I agree. he put out a statement saying that um, he disagreed with it. But the, the Republicans were brilliant. They made that a big issue of the campaign. And McClellan, you know, was a hero to his own army. Um, right. The army yeah. loved commanders who don't make them fight. Mm -hmm. you know, it's fun to just drill and picnic and do stuff like that. Um, the fighting is the bad stuff. Hmm. But um, McClellan only won 20% of the soldier vote in, in 1860. Really? Lincoln won 80% of it. I think that the soldiers themselves were ready, uh, remarkably ready to transform the fight from one of restoring the Union to one of ending slavery forever and just get, getting rid of it. So I don't think McClellan read the popular mind too, too well, or just didn't see the forest for the trees there. Now the emancipation, we could get into that proclamation and, and um, you know, what made Lincoln all of a sudden take that stand and everything like that. But one thing, the, the question I, aside from that is, uh, how did it change the way the war was fought when, when that happened? Well, the big change was, um, was that African-American recruits began joining the Army. Mm -hmm. and it greatly expanded the Union fighting machine. And it made manpower almost unlimited. It encouraged slaves to flee the plantations, those who had not done so already in the South. It severely curtailed um, the efficiency of slave labor in the South, and the home front was therefore threatened. It meant more African Americans left the plantation, you know, encouraging more Southern soldiers to desert and return home to protect their families and work their farms. So it had enormous consequences. And it, it very possibly also 
um, prevented England and France from interceding on the side of the Confederacy. Had they recognized mm. the legitimacy of the Confederacy as a separate country, um, they might even have entered the war uh, to stop it. And so mm. emancipation had the additional uh, military uh, positive fallout of preventing international intervention. That would have really been a terrible thing if that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Just a, a, another question about Lincoln here. You know, his his beloved son Willie dies. It was a terrible thing for him, and he's in through all this this situation. Now, there was some things I've read in the past that Lincoln suffered from depression. And do you think he just really threw himself into his work to alleviate some of that? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure as much as I admire uh, the work of. Uh, Joshua Wolfshank, who's a young friend of mine and with whom I did a book. Um, he is the, the author of Lincoln's Melancholy, in which he makes a really strong case for Lincoln's suffering from clinical depression. If he did suffer from clinical depression, I don't know how he survived. Um, I mean, this is something that oh. people saw in him years earlier. Usually people in those days just died. Mm -hmm. I mean, they took their own lives. They mm -hmm. didn't have medicines to help them you know, medication to help them through synaptical recovery. Mm -hmm. uh, but, so I'm not sure he really had depression. I think he was melancholy, and I think he was depressed about his family and the national family. I mean, how could you not, if, sure. you, if you make the decisions that cost the lives of 600,000 people, right. I mean, that's like 10 million today in today's population. That's a huge part of the country. How could you, if you're not depressed, then you really, then you ought to have your head examined. <laughs> right. So, yeah, and he endured a lot. And I think he did, uh, he went into a very brief period of mourning for his son and and knew he had to, he could not stop working. And, uh, yeah. and, and, and as you say, accurately, he threw himself into work at that terrible moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I know we are, have limited time today. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, documents and papers because I think Lincoln uh, shares with Jefferson a wonderful craft of writing. But just before I get into that, I want to fast forward to the end of the Civil War into the assassination. Um, you wrote a book on that. That must have been a fascinating thing to write a book on and research. It is because the stories are endless, the myths are endless, uh, the in American interest in it is, um, is, is, uh, is endless. So mm -hmm. we are uh, we're forever fascinated with it. I suspect that as we get closer to 2015 and the 150th anniversary, there will be yet another wave of, of uh, scholarship on it. Mm -hmm. Now, with JFK, there's all these conspiracies in that assassination, and I know there was some on Lincoln, and I had read somewhere that there was a theory that Edward Stanton had something to do with this. Um, did you did you come across a lot of conspiracy theories when you were researching? Oh, sure. I mean, the Stanton one is, was one that was invented by a writer named Otto Eisenschimmel in the 1940s. Oh, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and he, through the ridiculous circumstantial evidence, concluded that it was Stanton who masterminded it, and which is really, you know, sort of a sad thing that he is still. I get this question almost every time I go anywhere and any anywhere I speak. Mm -hmm. It's tragic because of his, you know, he was a Democrat, but he certainly didn't want Andrew Johnson to be president. So the whole thing is rather absurd. You know, the Lincoln assassination was a conspiracy. It was a conspiracy. Uh, of six or seven people that qualifies as a conspiracy 
In mm-hmm. fact, on the day we're speaking, after we're done, I'm heading to a screening um, before its release of a movie called The Conspirator. I don't know if you've heard about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been asked to see it early and then write a commentary for Town and Country magazine, of all places. It's a movie, it's Robert Redford's movie about Mary Surratt. Oh, yeah. The boarding house owner. Right. Mm-hmm. Who, you know, kept the nest that hatched the rotten egg, as Andrew Johnson put it. Was she guilty or was she not guilty? As we know, she was executed. So, right. yeah, yeah, there was a conspiracy. It just and it, and, it, and it was political in origins. It was not a mad act like Loeffner, probably. I guess he's, well, I guess Loeffner is clearly crazy. I don't know if he had any political views, but he's crazy. He was, he was crazy. Um, I think that, that uh, it's probably arguable that Lee Harvey Oswald was nuts, and, uh, mm-hmm. and the people who went after McClellan, and, um, sorry, uh, McKinley and uh, uh, Garfield were certifiable. I think that Booth wasn't. I think he was angry, I, but he was a very smart man, and mm-hmm. he, be, you know, he sort of whipped himself into a frenzy about Lincoln's uh, power and and about his ideas of letting African Americans attain citizenship. So it was a, in in, you know we, sh- we shouldn't tilt too far because the other theory is that it was a mad act, as one of the books about Booth uh, claimed. Of course, it's mad to, to shoot somebody in the theater and jump over the stage. That's that's mm-hmm. that's mad. But he had a political agenda. There's no question about it. Yeah, yeah, and um, his writing afterwards in this little pocket diary that he had was. Um, some of, he was just baffled that people were against him for doing it. Which yep, is, uh, I, I know he was. He thought he would be venerated, and he found mm-hmm. as even as he moved into southern territory and in, uh, to, on his escape route that uh, people, most people, tended to shy away from him, except the people who knew him and who were petrified of his telling anybody. Right, right. Now, briefly, I want to talk a little bit about the writings of Abraham Lincoln. Sure, um, and I agree with what you said about his being on a par with Jefferson, or maybe even a little higher, if you ask me, but uh, about as a writer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you have an idea of how many letters Lincoln wrote? I mean, is there, I know there's a lot it's of... It's supposed to be a million words. Um, <laughs> and but we're still, you know, a lot of the letters just don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. In, in those days, you know, you got a letter and, and you read it and you filed it and new letters keep popping up in families. I was telling you about sure. this Corwin letter that came to light only about three years ago. Uh, and that's an important one. So they still do appear from time to time. We have a better record of the letters that came into Lincoln than went out. I see. Uh-huh. Because he didn't, keep, he didn't keep copies of everything he sent out. Yeah. Well, the blog I wrote about his letters, I wrote in that that who knows how many Abraham Lincoln letters are sitting in someone's attic right now in a file somewhere stored. They have no idea they even have it. Well, no. what we have to do is we have to tell anybody who's related to someone whose family history says we had a letter from Lincoln. And, you know, they did know that. Um, you know, go out and find it. Mm-hmm. The, the Corwin family knew what they had. They just thought, oh, well, we have it. Why bother to discuss it with anybody? Uh, the truth is, though, that over the years, um, as you say, things in the attic get wet. They get burned. Uh, they get mm-hmm. eaten away by age. So a lot of those things are lost for all time because of the vicissitudes of climate and, uh, and uh, you know, fires. Right, right. I was in uh, the McCulloch family in uh, Kennebunk, Maine, and their original colonial home passed down through 
McCullough, and then to the family today. And they had uh, they had 40 letters of Lincoln, and they had one on April 14th. And those, I presume, are known. Uh, I would think so. Yeah. I know the one on April 14th, eventually, uh, of 1865, eventually did sell at an auction in Portland, Maine. Well, the good news is uh, two, two pieces of interesting to show you how interesting and ongoing a topic. One, there is a new attempt now, in fact, it's not an attempt, it's a project, to update the collected works of Abraham Lincoln, which are almost 60 years old now, mm -hmm. and only eight volumes, inadequate, even with two supplements. The, uh, the Lincoln Papers Project in Springfield is conducting a massive effort to get those out and published for the first time uh, in 60 years in a digital edition that will have incoming correspondence and outgoing correspondence in full. And, and, I'm, and I'm telling you, this is a huge project. Because oh, they've had people sure. going around the country for years scanning everything they can find. Wow. Um, and they are finding tons of stuff that doesn't exist before. So the numbers are going to just explode exponentially. But at the same time, you've got rumors that circulate through the Lincoln world, and, and, and I'll tell you one of them, because you mentioned McCulloch, I'll tell you about a different uh, public official. Gideon Wells, the Secretary of the Navy. There are lots of letters of Lincoln to Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War. There are very, very few to Gideon Wells, the Secretary of the Navy. And people have always assumed that, uh, you know, Lincoln just wasn't as interested in the Navy and didn't know enough about the Navy, and he taught himself about the Army and became something of, a, of an expert. But there is a rumor that's been going around for about six years that the Wells family, and there are a lot of Wellses, by the way. I know one mm -hmm. of them. Um, the Wells family has volumes of the letters of Lincoln to Wells. Uh, volumes, like uh, hundreds of letters that have never been published anywhere. And I know my friend Craig Simons, who I did the New York Times book with, um, just a couple of years ago wrote a book called uh, Lincoln and the Admirals, the first major book about Lincoln and the Navy. And he was understandably petrified during his research that he would finish his book. I mean, this was his recurrent nightmare. He'd wake up in cold sweats, he said. He would that he would submit his book, it would be just going to the printing presses, and somebody would come out with these 200 letters, and he would be left <laughs> in an alert with an out-of-date book. And I don't know whether it's um, uh, a rumor, a myth at this point, but boy, would I love to see those letters. That would be the find of the generation. Wow. Wow. I hope that, I hope that comes to fruition. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us today. This, this has, has been, been a lot of fun. I'm oh, it's been very great. grateful that you called me. I'm excited for your for your blog and, and these podcasts that you do. I think you do a great service to all the enthusiasts in the country who care about our history. Great. Well, it's, it's been a very great pleasure to participate with you. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Take Bye -bye. care now. Bye-bye. So this is Martin Willis with Harold Holzer, and we're signing off. website antiqueauctionforum.com please stop by the forum message board click on the community tab at the top of the menu bar and you can join in on a topic post your own website links and do a lot more thanks so much for listening and we hope you enjoyed today's show